We've got an election coming up next week, and we've got a whole lot of elections coming up in November. On today's episode, we see how things are shaping up down ballot and talk about whether one of the two parties will manage to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. For some people, elections are a thing that takes place once every four years on a Tuesday in November. But the folks over at Bloomberg Government know that elections are happening pretty much all the time. Presidential elections, congressional elections, primary elections, and even, and especially, special elections. One of those special elections is happening in New York next week to replace disgraced former Congressman George Santos. But then, starting early next month, states across the country are going to start holding their congressional primary elections. Depending on who wins those, we could either have a nail-biter of a general election in November, or not so much. Greg Giroux is going to help us raise the curtain on all the political contests coming up this year, and I started off by asking him whether, right now, Either the Republicans or the Democrats are favored to unify their power and take back both chambers of Congress later this year. Neither party has a clear advantage to win control of the House or the Senate, I think, at this early juncture. In the House races, I think the two parties are very evenly matched. We have one of the closest majorities in modern U.S. history as we speak today. Republicans have 219 seats, Democrats just 212, need 218 for a majority. So it could really go either way. There are still dozens of competitive races that really haven't gelled yet. In the Senate, I think the Republicans have a little bit more of an advantage, if only because of a very favorable election map. Of the 35 Senate seats at stake, the Democrats are the defending party in 23 of them, and the Republicans in just 12. And the Democrats have basically the lion's share of competitive states to defend. So a lot more defense for Democrats than Republicans in the race for the control of the Senate. Does the fact that it's a presidential year and not a midterm election play into this at all? I mean, I know that the dynamics between presidential elections and midterm elections are very, very different. Uh, does that play into the fact that we're really evenly matched here? It's definitely a major factor because, uh, for one reason, the presidential election is always going to draw higher voter turnout than a midterm election. And so we'll, we'll see a lot of people who will vote for down-ballot races like uh, U.S. Senate races, U.S. House races, and for state legislature uh, who would uh, normally not vote in those elections in midterm election years. So that's that's point number one. And the big question is, you know, what do these uh, down-ballot voters do in these House and Senate races? One thing we've noticed in politics over the last uh, generation or two is that we've seen a greater partisan convergence in how states and districts vote for president and vote for Congress. Less of what we call ticket splitting. Yes, there's a whole lot less ticket splitting than we've had uh, in the past. Ticket splitters will still be important this election in some very key uh, Senate and House races, but it's not uh, the big factor that it was a generation or two ago. Okay, well, let's get into it. Uh, and let's start off with the Senate. You mentioned that the map is looking a little bit tougher for Democrats than for Republicans. Which are the Senate races, uh, which states uh, are coming up in November that you're really watching and you think might be you know, crucial to determining who controls the Senate? I think there are seven states that I'm watching very closely. And in all seven states, the Democrats are the defending incumbent party. There are two of those states that Donald Trump won handily in 2016 and 2020, and those are Ohio and Montana. Ohio is a state where Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown is defending his seat. I'm running in 2024, uh, and I run to win. 
in Montana is where uh, Democratic Senator John Tester is defending uh, his seat. Both of them are seeking fourth terms. Then you've got five states where the Democrats are defending seats in states that President Joe Biden won by fewer than three percentage points in the 2020 election, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. So I think those are the seven states to watch. The Senate starts out as 51 to 49 Democratic, but I sort of treat the Senate election as starting out at 50-50 because West Virginia, where Joe Manchin is retiring, the Democrats have no chance of holding on to that seat. No chance. Slim to none, and I think Slim has already left the building. Um, so I think the Senate election really starts out at 50-50, and I think the battlegrounds are these seven states I just mentioned. You want to keep an eye on a couple of other states, maybe Texas and Florida, where uh, Ted Cruz and Rick Scott respectively are seeking re-election. I'm right now, as you know, in a very tough re-election race in Texas. The Democrats' Chuck Schumer has made clear I'm his number one target. Those are very expensive states for Democrats, Democratic candidates and Democratic super PACs to play in. So I think maybe these seven states that either Biden lost or narrowly won, I think, will be what will be decisive in the campaign for control of the Senate. Very briefly, I want to point out that all of those are really fascinating races. But the one that I'm keeping my eye on, uh, not just because it's my home state, but because there's a really interesting dynamic going on there is Arizona. We begin in Washington, where Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema says that she is leaving the Democratic Party and is registered as an independent. A lot of people are wondering, is she going to run uh, for re-election? And if so, in what party? Will it be a three-way race? Yeah, a very interesting race. Um, I think it'll be very close regardless of what Senator Sinema does. If she does run for re-election, presumably as an independent candidate, it would uh, make things very interesting because independent candidates rarely win statewide elections. Um, yeah, she I, could be a spoiler, I guess. Yeah, and when I talked to Arizona political consultants, you know, they couldn't think of a race where you know an independent had uh, much less you know won or even been highly competitive. And they say there's a path for Sinema to win re-election, but a very narrow one. It'd be very, very hard for her to do so. She, if she runs as an independent, she would have to collect about 42,000 signatures of registered voters by April the 8th. So she's got uh, about two months to do so. She has time, but not a whole lot of time to make her decision. Well, that will be really fascinating. Um, let's get into the primaries, though, because as I mentioned, the primaries haven't taken place in a lot of places. Um, so we don't know who the candidates are. And who the candidates are is really, really important. Uh, are there specific races where you think that who wins the primary could be, you know, the determining factor in whether an incumbent stays alive or is you know, defeated? That's going to be one of the things to watch as these primaries kick off on March the 5th. We have five states voting on March the 5th with a total of 115 congressional districts because they include uh, large states like California and Texas. And that's one fourth of the more than one fourth of the U.S. House uh, districts right there. You know, there is, uh, I think, some districts here and there where you um, I think the outcome of the primary could be decisive in you know, the general election. You know, one district I'm watching pretty closely that's voting on March the 5th is in eastern North Carolina, North Carolina's first district where you have uh, two Republican women running to try and unseat uh, first-term Democratic Congressman Don Davis. Uh, one of the candidates in that race has already lost twice before. And so maybe uh, the other candidate, who is a self-funding candidate with $1 million, a retired Army colonel, uh, she may be you know, some some in that party, some in the Republican Party may see her as the stronger general election candidate. And we should say that's in the House. Um, are there any Senate races where if a particular candidate wins the primary, the incumbent is all of a sudden looking a lot safer? 
There are some races where the incumbent, I think, is clearly preferring one candidate over the other. I, I mentioned Montana. I don't know if this outcome would make uh, John Tester much safer, but it's clear that the Democrats would prefer to run against Congressman Matt Rosendale, who is probably going to announce his candidacy pretty soon. With more people entering the field, what's your reaction to that? So right now, I'm, as you can see, sitting in my official office here in Washington, D.C., and I'm not able to uh, have any conversations about campaign activity. Rosenell has already lost a tester in 2018, and that's one reason why Republican uh, insiders in Washington, including the Senate Republican campaign arm, have come out strongly in favor of Tim Sheehy a businessman and former Navy SEAL, as their preferred candidate in that race. I think the Democrats would love to run against Rosenell rather than Sheehy. And then the other, um, I think you want to look at the other state where um, Biden lost in 2020, where Democrats defending his seat, and that's Ohio. Uh, You have three Republicans running in the March 19th primary, so that's coming up pretty soon. I'm not sure if uh, one is a stronger general election nominee over the others, but I think the Democrats are at least counting on a a very fractious primary that would, you know, maybe drain their campaign funds and make uh, Democratic incumbent Sherrod Brown look better. Yeah. Um, Let's move on to the House. So the Democrats are a hair's breadth from taking back the House and will, of course, be keeping an eye on redistricting where some states will have new maps that will switch a safe seat from one party to another. But just looking at the fundamentals of the districts as they're drawn right now, do you see any way that Democrats would not take back the House this fall? Well, I think it it will depend on a lot of factors, including uh, the quality of candidates' campaigns and candidate recruitment, although that process is pretty much played out. Um, As we mentioned earlier, you know, a a lot's going to depend on what happens at the top of the ticket. And you know, uh, I don't think Joe Biden needs to have an approval rating in the 50s or the 60s to give Democrats the lift they need to win control of the House. But with the president's approval rating being in the high 30s, a very mediocre approval rating, um, that's a little bit of a, a drag, I think, on Democrats trying to win control of the House. I still think they could. When um, the Democrats overperformed in the 2022 election, they barely lost the House majority in that last election. You know, Joe Biden's approval rating wasn't that good then. And in U.S. politics, we have what's called kind of negative partisanship, where you're sort of voting against the other party more than you're uh, defending your own. And with Donald Trump on the ballot, who also does not have a uh, a robust approval rating, I think we'll see uh, Democrats running against Donald Trump. Are there particular types of districts that will be key to determining the outcome of this year's elections? You know, we typically think of urban districts as being very strongly Democratic and rural districts as being very Republican, and then the suburban districts are sort of the swing districts. Will that play out? Is that still going to be the the trend? Or do you think there's another type of district or another region of the country that will be the place to watch? I think control of the House will be disproportionately played out on the two big coastal states of California and New York. And I say that because, um, so we have 18 congressional districts right now that voted for Joe Biden in the 2020 election and then voted Republican for the U.S. House in 2022. 11 of those 18 are in California and New York alone. So talk about a disproportionate number. That 18, by the way, also includes the district that was recently vacated by the expelled former representative George Santos. So that's that's a swing district as well. George Santos was mobbed by reporters as he was kicked out of Congress today. 
there aren't too many uh, open seats that incumbents have left open that are very competitive. But of the ones that are, the Democrats, I think, are defending more of them. There are a couple of districts in Michigan that I think are worth watching. Uh, there's a district in the Lansing area and there's a district in the Flint area that uh, Democrats are giving up either to retire or seek other office. And I think Michigan is going to be what I like to call a triple battleground state. It's going to be a swing state in the presidential race. It has an open U.S. Senate race, I think, is bears uh, close watch. And then it it's going to have at least two and possibly uh, three competitive U.S. House races. So if you uh, own a local TV station in uh, the Michigan area, you are seeing dollar signs in your eyes from all those campaign ads that are going to be uh, flooding the airwaves later this year. Oh, yes. Um, but let's uh, not even talk about later this year because we don't need to wait for that to get to some elections. We have special elections coming up with the next one being next week to fill the seat of the uh, aforementioned George Santos. I think it could go either way. I think it's a pure toss-up because in the 2020 election, this district, which is on parts of Long Island and parts of Queens in New York City, voted for Joe Biden by about eight percentage points. But in 2022, New York Democrats actually underperformed in their state races, and that district actually voted for the Republican candidates for governor and for a U.S. senator. That's really interesting. I would think that in that district, voters would be pretty turned off by the Republicans, given, you know, all the sort of the whole Santos saga. But it sounds like what you're saying is that the Republicans and voters in general sort of blame that on Santos himself and not so much the Republican brand in Long Island. Yeah, that's a very good question. That's going to be, I think, one of the things I'm watching in the home stretch of this campaign. I think the Democrats are going to try and more closely align the Republican nominee in that uh, in that special election, Mozzie Pillip, who is a Nassau County legislator. I think the Democrats are going to try and more closely uh, wed her to George Santos. But Democrats have some challenges here. Uh, their voter turnout in this district was not very good for Democrats in 2022. I think the crime issue was not helpful to Democrats in the 2022 election. And the most dominant issue that I've seen on the TV airwaves in this race has been the um, surge of migrants uh, at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. You know, that, that, that has implications for uh, you know, New York City and New York City's economy in the metropolitan area. And you know, we're seeing Republicans run very hard on that issue and trying to link the Democratic candidate, former uh, Congressman Tom Squazzi, to what's going on, the, the migration crisis we're seeing. That's fascinating. Well, we'll, we'll wait to see the results from that election. Um, but let's talk about... Really briefly, the other special elections that are coming up in California, uh, Western New York and Ohio. California uh, is notable as the uh, district of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We have breaking news. The former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress. Do you see any of those districts as potential flips or do you think that they'll probably just remain the party that they are? I think they'll remain within the party fold as they currently are. Of the four vacant House seats right now, only the New York 3rd District, formerly held by George Santos, is the only one that's really remotely competitive between the two parties. We have that California election, as you mentioned, in former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's district. It is the most Republican district in all of California. The Ohio district, there's an Ohio district that was vacated by Republican Bill Johnson, who became a university president last month. That district is also very uh, conservative and very Republican leaning. And then the other vacancy, the newest vacancy is in New York's 26th district, which is a very compact Democratic bastion in the Buffalo area. Brian Higgins resigned that seat uh, last week uh, to take a job in the private sector. And I think the Democrats will have no problem holding that seat. So the New York 3rd district, that's the one to watch out of the four. 
normally it wouldn't be that interesting to break down each individual special election because special elections happen all the time. But when the House is divided this closely, it's worth paying attention to every single special election. Um, So as we mentioned, we've got four coming up, including the one next week. However, there could always be more. Um, Do you have any House members in particular who are on retirement watch, uh, either because of age or because of like George Santos, where they have some sort of scandal hanging over them? Because at this point, you know, every retirement really, really matters in the House. Yeah, I think um, my House retirement watch list is a little bit uh, thin right now because the bulk of the House retirements tend to come in the November, December, and January before the election year, kind of right around the holidays when sure. people have had you know Thanksgiving and December holidays and they've been able to talk over their plans with their families. A lot of, a lot of members say, I'm not running for re-election, but very few members at this stage in the game actually resign from Congress. That's right. And we might get a, I think we'll get a few more retirement announcements. I think the thing to watch will be, do they come in politically safe districts or in competitive districts? As you mentioned, with the House majority of this narrow, uh, any retirement or resignation or or, or, or death, or even a, even an extended absence from House voting, which we have among some members, uh, that can have uh, really outsized implications for not only the, the race for control of the House, but also uh, the ability of the narrow House Republican majority to pass uh, things they want to get done before the November election. I think in the, my retirement watch is more focused on the Senate, where uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema, we mentioned earlier, wondering to see if Senator Bob Menendez will uh, run for election. I don't think he will because he has a very uh, narrow path to do so. And and you've got a member like Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont who's going to announce his plans pretty soon. Vermont is such a heavily Democratic state that um, Sanders' retirement won't affect the control of the Senate. But, you know, Sanders is the longest serving independent in history and is a pretty notable political figure. But on the House side, I, I'm not, you know, you're going to get a few more retirements. I mean, the big question will be, does anyone have to, you know, does anyone vacate a seat unexpectedly? And is there a competitive special election to fill that seat? Yeah. All right. Well, that was Greg Giroux talking with us about what's going to be happening in November and before. Uh, Greg, thank you so much. This was really fascinating. Very welcome. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Store, And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.